Welcome back to the Paris Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Stephen Lovelace. Stephen is a paratriathlete and in fact, is one of the first people to be called a para-athlete, or at least in the triathlon community. And he got started quite a long time ago and is now doing mostly paracycling. But we want to introduce him to you. So Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. I uh, love the accent, by the way, and <laughs> it's going to be such a great uh, pleasure to talk to you today about nutrition and a bit about my story. So thank you. Yeah. Well, let's start with your story. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got into competing in triathlons? Sure. It goes back to 1982 when I was uh, in college. It was my second year and make a little bit of extra money. I was cutting firewood. And one day in 82, November 30th, 1982, to be specific, a friend and I were out cutting a huge hackberry tree. When the tree split in half, in lumberjack terms, it's what they call a barber chair. It's not uncommon, and it is very, very dangerous. We didn't know this at the time, but we quickly found out because as my friend was cutting, the tree basically had split in half and fell. The uh, bottom half shot back at me, and both the halves closed up, pinning me to the ground with this massive tree. What I came to find out eventually was that my frontal bone had been crushed. My mandible was crushed. I split the roof of my mouth open, uh, lost a couple of teeth. My wrist, my left wrist was crushed. My heart was bruised and I had three lumbar vertebrae that basically exploded when the tree hit me and it caused a temporary paralysis due to the swelling. So spent about three and a half months in a hospital about another three and a half months in a rehabilitation center. And then eventually I get out and kind of thrown to, to myself to basically relearn how to walk because the, temp, the paralysis was temporary and I was able to walk out of the hospital, uh, which I had vowed to do going in when they told me that I was going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life. Mm. So it was relatively miraculous. I uh, was always into athletics. I was a runner. I, uh, I played baseball, I played basketball, I played golf. I mean, if it was a sport, I tried my best to, to do it. I eventually figured out how to run after my accident, mm -hmm. and I took up running 10Ks. At some point in 1985, I was watching TV when I came across the wide world of sports. There was a moment on this episode where Julie Moss was crawling across the finish line. She was yards from the finish line. And I could so relate to her struggle, just putting every ounce of energy to get to that finish line because I had just done that going from not being able to walk and near death to now running. And I'm watching this person just give her all to get to the finish line. She eventually came in second. That was, that was at the Hawaii Ironman? Yeah, that was the Hawaiian Ironman uh, Championship back in yeah. 1985. Mm -hmm. So... That inspired me to want to go out and do a triathlon. Yep. I knew nothing about triathlon other than what I just witnessed. I mean, triathlon back in 1985 was not the sport that it is today. There was 
an international scene, of course, but locally, there just wasn't a lot going on. Uh, I got most of my information from Triathlete Magazine, which I, I had subscribed to very quickly after wanting to go train. Eventually, back in uh, 86, it was June of 86, I entered my first quarter Ironman, we called it back then. Now it's an Olympic distance. Mm-hmm. I went to that race not being able to do any of the distances. I'd been training my best, but I'd been falling short of the mark of, of doing any one of the disciplines with the exception of the 10K completely. But I did finish the race. Mm-hmm. I came in last place, and uh, <laughs> it was really my proudest moment. Uh, and I'm not talking last place age group. I'm talking last place overall. Total. But nobody knew my story until mm. now. I'm just now starting to tell it because what I discovered was when COVID hit, I, I started doing research on the history of paratriathlon. So mm-hmm. this got me to looking deeper and deeper. And what I came to discover is that with my record of having done the triathlon in 86, the only other person that I could find in print that had done a triathlon prior to that was a gentleman by the name of Pat Griscus. So I unwittingly helped pioneer a sport. I was the second documented individual to have done a paratriathlon, and this was well before the term even existed. And mm-hmm. uh, it was even before the Americans with Disability Act. So right. you know, yeah. there were no disabled heroes back then. I mean, I kind of mm. had to create my own path. So mm. uh, that's kind of led me here to, to telling my story with you. Oh, well, we're very happy that you are here with us. So tell us a little bit about what your physical impairment was at that point in time, because you were running as a two-legged runner, mm-hmm. not in a wheelchair. So give us an idea of how your impairment was impacting on both the bike and the run, because I believe there were kind of impacts on both sides of things. Sure. I ended up with foot drop and weakness in my left lower leg. Mm -hmm. And back in the early 80s, you know, you had the white plastic AFO, Mm -hmm. which there was no mobility to it. It was very stiff. I chose not to use it because I felt it very limiting especially since I was so active. But the way that impacted me was on cycling. I mean, you know, I basically had one leg that was working mostly 100%, but I had to endure a constant pain of the sciatic nerve back then. Uh, So I was constantly taking medication. Eventually, I moved on to just taking Excedrin and, and aspirin and ibuprofen, which, you know, sort of helped. But the pain was limiting. And of course, you know, the paralysis was was limiting as well mm-hmm. so it, it but it, it didn't stop me i mean it was only a small barrier that i was able to overcome and i was going to get the result that i was going to get and i was not looking to go pro i was not looking for any type of recognition back then mm-hmm. just looking to to do my thing okay and since there was no category for someone with an impairment when when did that first seem to come in for for paratriathlon Wow. You know, I did triathlon from 86 into the early 90s. I think maybe 1990 or 91 was my last triathlon that I did before just this last year. Mm-hmm. From a historical perspective, I don't think that it's been around that long. I mean, it's only become an Olympic sport in 2016, which was mm-hmm. you know 30 years after I started. But, yeah. you know, there, there is inclusion now. I think maybe it was in the early 2000s when that came around the, the categories for classification. Yeah. And now you're 
a little bit more focused on cycling and I believe you have actually been classified in cycling. So can you just tell us what your classification is for paracycling? Sure. I got classified back in 2015, I believe. And back then my legs were much stronger. I ended up with a C3 classification. Since then, I've got a disease called arachnoiditis, which is progressive in my particular situation. The disease is slowly paralyzing me below the waist. Mm. Uh, where the injury is with the arachnoiditis, it's around L4, L3. Yeah. So it's going to impact all that lower extremities. And essentially what happens is the blood supply gets cut off of the nerves. The nerves swell up. The nerves die. Mm. And so I'm slowly being paralyzed and I'm moving down in classification. Yeah. If I were to get classified today uh, or reclassified, which I, I definitely need to do, I'd probably be a C2 or a C1 for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And with the years that you've been involved in sport at this level, you must have seen some massive changes in the way nutrition is managed and particularly in the early days with an Ironman triathlon. Can you tell us about how you managed your nutrition back in the mid-80s in in your training and also in competition? Sure. Because I think it's really, really useful to kind of reflect on that history because I think a lot of people forget that sports nutrition is actually a quite a, a young specialization. So, yeah, what sort of things were you doing back in the, in the mid-80s? Well, you, you say, how did I manage? I would say mismanaged would probably be a better description <laughs> on, on nutrition back in the day. You know, we were all about carbs, which now is, you know, everybody's staying away from carbs. And so it's now all about protein. But back when I first started, by comparison, I mainly rode and drank water. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have a drink mix. I did use a drink mix called Exceed, which uh, has since gone away, but I actually loved that drink. Mm. <laughs> it was a powder that you would mix, and it was uh, much like some of the glucose-type drinks that you would get today. Yep. It was that, I, because I didn't have a lot of money back then, I ended up saving that mainly for for racing. Mm-hmm. But towards the buildup of a race, I would always use that you know, to, to fuel with on my rides, just because I know how important it is to, you know, you have to try your stuff out before you hit competition, Mm -hmm. just because you never know what's going to happen on the day of, if if you're shoving something in your mouth, that's foreign, your stomach may uh, reject. And, you know, then there goes your race, but. So you had some experience with that? Oh yeah. I mean, it was learned by trial and error back in the day. I mean, you know, I Mm -hmm. would, (laughs) sadly I ate, rice cakes because they were very portable. They weren't nutritious very, I mean, and I didn't know that much about nutrition. There was a a cereal called ProGrain that I think Mark Allen repped for a while that was a Kellogg's brand cereal Mm -hmm. uh, that was probably not the healthiest, but, you know, they made it seem that way. And of course I loaded up on that and did a lot of pasta and such back in the day. Yeah. And so what what experience did you have if you, I think you mentioned that you used to use Exceed and you mo- mostly use that in the race itself. What happened when in the early t- days when you were only using it for races? Did you have any gastrointestinal side effects from that or what what actually happened in the race? Yeah, it would definitely affect me. I mean, I, I've come to learn that nutrition is the fourth discipline and in my opinion, it's the most important of all four from a triathlon perspective. Mm -hmm. 
you know, not using something during training and then introducing it during a race is always going to be detrimental. And I, I face my fair share. You know, when you're out there on a quarter Ironman and you're coming off your bike going hard and you hit the run, you grab a banana, you grab an orange or whatever on the way out and a little bit of water, uh, man, if, if you're not used to eating that stuff, you know, the citric acid's probably not going to be the best for you. The banana is definitely going to go down kind of hard and you need that <laughs> stuff. But if your body's not used to processing it during exercise, uh, you're always going to have an issue, which is why I say that it's the most important discipline because if you get it wrong, your entire race is done. Mm. You may go slow on the bike. You may go slow on the run. But if, you know, nutrition impacts swimming, running, and riding, so you got to get it right. It's yeah. got to be uh, one of those most important values that you have as, as a, you know, athletic individual in endurance racing. Yeah, absolutely. And so give us a little bit of an idea of what a typical training week currently looks like for you. <laughs> well, with my disease arachnoiditis, it's kind of a roller coaster. I have what I call good days, I have bad days, and I have survival days. Mm. Uh, it's a very painful yep. disease. So my week is I'm not as disciplined as most individuals because I never know how my days are going to vary. Mm -hmm. But I do, when I'm having a great day, I take full advantage and, you know, I'll either hit the trainer if it's too hot outside, which sometimes I you know, just don't want to ride in the heat. I'd rather have a fan blowing on me. Mm -hmm. But overall, you know, I'll probably do, I don't know, maybe anywhere between five and 10 or 12 hours worth of riding and maybe a little bit of weightlifting and, you know, working on my core. So it's all a combination mm -hmm. of that. And then I'll, I'll throw a swim in as well mm -hmm. when I'm having a good day. That's over the week, correct? Yeah. And I mean, it's, there are, weeks where I try to go harder. Mm -hmm. There are weeks where I can't go at all just because uh, weather impacts me. You know, when the storm moves through, I tend to have a flare up. My temperature my pain escalates and I just have to survive it because I don't take any pain medication. Yep. It's all, I take a more of a holistic approach with, yep. uh, with my health. Okay. And I don't, I don't think that that's uncommon. I think, you know, a lot of para athletes experience the fluctuation of functionality and pain certainly there's a lot of impairments where that's the case so i think you know that's it's useful to kind of get that feedback in terms of how you manage that process what about your nutrition has that changed over the years your general day-to-day -day diet how do you how do you eat from a day-to-day -day perspective <laughs> used to be pretty bad but uh, I had a heart attack back in 2017 that set me on the right road. My cardiologist, just kind of a preface, I got into endurance sports mainly. You know, it was by fluke back in 1985, but uh, I kept on doing endurance sports because heart disease runs in my family. Mm -hmm. And I've never been overweight. I'm 5'7", 140 pounds, mostly muscle. And my physician said, you just can't outrun genetics. I mean, it's going to catch up to you. Mm -hmm. It did in my case. Uh, so, you know, you can be the fittest guy on earth, but that's going to take care of you. So that particular instance switched me over. Now I eat a lot of fish. I eat a lot of whole grains. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to keep it pretty simple and, and I'm not a complex guy. I do things routinely. I'll buy a bunch of frozen salmon and put some salmon and some asparagus in a tinfoil hut, 
throw it in the oven for 400 degrees, 15, 20 minutes, and I'm good to go with a great meal. Mm-hmm. From uh, uh, more of a nutritional side, I, I do a lot of protein now. I understand the benefits of protein within that 30 to 45-minute window after a good training session because you have to get that muscle, mm-hmm. you know, the building blocks to repair and grow, as well as, you know, doing it prior to a uh, a good workout. I use something called frog fuel, which is faster absorption. There's no the uh, high fructose corn syrup, which I stay away from. So I try to, again, try to keep it as natural as possible. But mm-hmm. sometimes you got to get what you get. And if, if you're at a race and all they have is goo when you're passing through an aid station, grab a goo. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's fuel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. And when you say that you've seen nutrition change over the years, in terms of where your information comes from, have you seen big changes in terms of the the resources that are available to athletes in terms of good nutrition? Like there's lots of not so good nutrition ideas and that on the internet, but have you seen an improvement in, in that side of things? Sure. I mean, back in 85 and 86, you would get the, uh, I would get the triathlete magazine delivered and they would have a nutrition section back then. But, you know, as you had said earlier in the conversation, your specialty is relatively young, you know, by comparison to the sport, Mm. you know, in general. So, you know, we've learned so much. And now, as you said, with the internet, there was no internet back then. There were no cell phones and selfies and all this, you know, quick information. (laughs) So you either knew it or you didn't. And, you know, my thing was I watched a lot of Popeye. So I knew spinach had a lot of good iron and, you know, it was a green vegetable, which I love to eat raw, hate to eat cooked, Uh, (laughs) drink a lot of whole milk. You know, I I knew that I needed a little bit of fat and it had a lot of protein in it as well. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there just was not that type of information. And now it's at your fingertips. If you want to go research whey protein, you'll get umpteen thousand returns on Google. So mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of good information. I think you have to find the source and know that it's credible and that it's reliable. And then you go back to that for all the other information versus going to this guru and that guru and finding conflicting information, which is always out there. And do you have any particular... And then, of course, finding out what works... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, what go works ahead. for you. Yeah. So. Um, no, no, no. Um, Just finding out what works for you is probably the best thing. Yeah. And do you have any particular gurus that you go to for your nutrition information? <laughs> I ha- Well, not necessarily. I go to triathlete.com, uh, which is mm-hmm. kind of go back to my original source, which is ironic. There's a lot of great information, and since that is centered on this sport in general, I know that I'm going to get good information. It's going to be solid. Mm-hmm. It's going to have been tried, and I can look through their articles and through the magazines and see who's doing this type of thing. If you want to know, get a good result on something, look at what the pros are doing. I mean, it's down to a science for them, and it all comes down to minutia when you're trying to say, shave seconds you know, nutrition is a big part of, of shaving seconds. And these guys are going to get it dialed in with professionals like yourself throughout their training. And mm-hmm. so why not mirror what they're doing and, or find a, somebody that with your similar likes and put that into your training regime. And is, is that the same with training? Like, I guess what I'm getting at is that a lot of the people that I've talked to on this podcast are elite level athletes. So 
they're, they're people who potentially have some of these resources available to them, like a sports dietitian. But you're not in that scenario. You haven't had that available to you through your sporting career. And there's a lot of people who I hope might listen to this podcast who are in a similar situation. So I'm interested in where you get your training advice from as well. Like you, you don't have a specific coach and you haven't had a specific coach from what I understand because it was before the time that a lot of clubs triathlon clubs were setting up so how did you get a lot of your and how do you get a lot of your coaching information from well back in when I first started it was all through the magazine as you said there were no clubs and mm-hmm. it was such a new sport that there were not that many people I did uh, today you roll around and you see stickers on the back of cars that say 70.3 and I mean everybody's advertising that they're doing this so it would be easy to identify mm-hmm. somebody that you could connect with but even going to the gym I worked at the YMCA was a lifeguard nobody knew what triathlon was it was such a foreign <laughs> sport to everybody so I, I never ran into anybody other than at the races and eventually you know you you get to know these individuals. I, I was relatively shy when I raced and I, I never advertised that I was mm-hmm. there with this accident, you know, my story behind me. So I, I had a hard time approaching people and asking for help and for questions. But eventually I broke down that barrier because if you want to learn, you have to ask and mm-hmm. no question is stupid when you're trying to learn. So by comparison today, you know, and buy books they're there by the hundreds you know the internet is just full of things and mainly uh, I still kind of struggle with my training because of my disease and because of my limitations so uh, there I am friends with a few para athletes here locally in Oklahoma City mm-hmm. that we trade ideas and you know I just the other day was introduced to a swimming coach for the very first time this guy's going to take me on under his wing and you know, see what we can do to help work my, my swim stroke out and improve my swimming. And it's just through connections locally that I find, I find the best resources locally through people that I know now yep. and through the club, Oklahoma city, try or Tulsa try mm-hmm. those individuals that are there want to help. And, and I'm one of those guys now that want to help. So yep. it's all about yep. promoting the sport and, you know, helping people. It's not as competitive as you would think among the local ranks. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on from that, what is some of the recommendations that you'd provide to potential athletes, you know, people who are interested in getting involved in para sport, what are some of the big lessons that you've learned and, and things that you'd recommend to them? Don't be fearful is the biggest one. <laughs> Most people that I run into, and, you know, I'll, I'm not shy about approaching somebody in a wheelchair or somebody that's an amputee just because I didn't know there was such a thing as Paralympics until I think late to or early 2000s mm. i mean and that's not due to my ignorance it's just due to the fact that i wasn't tuned into it so mm. how do these individuals do, do we know if they know or do we know if they don't and i i want everybody to be challenged with doing a triathlon mm-hmm. uh, so i you know i'll approach them and say look there there are resources we have challenged athletes foundation uh, yep. i'm currently an ambassador for usa triathlon foundation 
and we raise money to overcome the impediments that these individuals will run into, which is mainly equipment, mm -hmm. expensive racing wheelchairs, expensive prosthetics, expensive bikes. I mean, there's just so much wetsuits. Let's yeah. go on and on. There's so much to it. And that's normally the biggest hurdle, but the biggest fear is doing all three. Oh, I can't do all three. Mm. And I'm like, look, don't say I can't say I'll try. And yeah. that will open many more doors for you in the long run. And it's not about training for all three disciplines every day, every week of the day. Mm -hmm. It's about doing small moves and they'll add up eventually to a big product, which is your race day. That's when you put all three together. You might do a few bricks here and there during your training, but you know, it's not as difficult as you would think to ride a bike or to put one arm in front of another in the water. If you can already swim, great. And then running kind of, you know, takes care of itself. Eventually, it's probably the toughest of the disciplines that I see personally, because you can't stop while you're running. You can tread water mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can coast on the bike. But when you're running, you know, you're either running or you're walking, but you're moving, you're standing yeah. and you're using that, that, you know, that part of the body mm -hmm. uh, that's already so tired and saying stop. But uh, if I can just convince them to just do some of these sports and then put it all together in a race, Crossing a finish line will change their life forever. They'll forever be called a triathlete. Nobody can ever take that away from them. And a few people step up to the challenge, but those that do, it's life-changing. And, you know, you didn't always come last in your race. Your first race you did, but obviously you kept going and, and were able to improve your times and improve, you know, your speed and your transitions and everything over time, correct? Sure. Yeah, I never came in last in any other race. I never quit a race that I was in. I may have done a few criteriums where I got lapped and you know <laughs> they kick you off the course, but you know it's that's all part of the process. It's just about participating and you know going out there and and just doing your best because the sports that I like the best now, it's me against the course and it's me against the clock. I, I never challenge myself against other individuals. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I have even back in the, the 80s and early 90s, I was winning my age group as a disabled athlete mm -hmm. in many instances. And I mean, you know, I again, I wasn't out there beating the drum because being a disabled athlete was just not a cool thing to be mm. back in the day. You just, I flew under the radar because, you know, I was afraid that if I got found out that they would think that I was a liability and they might not let me compete. So I just went out and competed, you know, without saying anything, uh, which is really kind of sad when you think about it, because that's, <laughs> that's the mission that I'm on now is that don't hide, yeah. come out from, you know, whatever, shade you may be under because it's wonderful to go out there and inspire people uh, and that's essentially what I'm trying to do with you know my efforts now. Mm. And do you think that you'd be as I guess physically functional these days if you hadn't have gotten into triathlons back in the day? No I mean I, I well you know it it's kind of hard to say. I've always been an active kid. I think I was ADHD and hyperactive, you know, beyond compare when I was a kid. I was always moving. <laughs> so I, my mom threw me into no, all no, these I think, I think that's. To, hey, I'm going to stop you there. I don't think that's ADHD. I think that's normal kid behavior. <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I see it in my two boys as well now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, well, <laughs> not as active as I used to be because, you know, computers and games and all this stuff, we didn't have any of that. It was all outside and your mom would run outside and yell your name to across the neighborhood and you would come running home because you were always outside doing something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I was always the kind of guy that would challenge myself to something new. So I would probably be a different version of my active self now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe not triathlon, but, you know, I'm so thankful I found the sport because, you know, even before I figured out that I was part of the history of triathlon and paratriathlon, I just love the sport for the challenge that it presented and the fact that not many people would do it or I don't want to say are capable, uh, incapable of doing it because everybody's capable. I would just say that unwilling and, you know, it's just, I don't know, multi-sport and endurance, just pushing myself. (laughs) I've just always chased that carrot stick for some reason. And so what about a club or, you know, if there was a, a, a coach or a club or a group out there who hadn't really experienced para-athletes yet, what recommendations would you give to them? You know, I just joined uh, Oklahoma City Tri over this last year when I started getting back into triathlon. And my purpose is to, because I, I'm not sure how many para-athletes they have. I haven't asked that question of them, but it's to show them that, look, there's a whole other side. And if you want to look at growth in triathlon, I think paratriathlon has the greatest potential for growth compared to just normal triathlon. I mean, they're always looking to, you know, include more sports like we're doing aqua bikes now and we're, we're, mm-hmm. you know, mixing yep. up, yep. up with multi-sport. Yep. So, uh, but I think there's so many I mean, disabled people are 15% of the population. Mm, Think about that. That's yeah. a, and when I show up at a triathlon, I may be the only disabled athlete there. Mm. Physically, it's pretty easy to pick me out in a crowd, but it's the lack of participation that uh, really is kind of sad for me mm-hmm. to witness now. Yeah. And, you know, there's some really good foundations like the Challenge Athlete Foundation and a couple of other foundations in the US that can help athletes with equipment and can help, you know, in terms of that financial, potential financial barrier to becoming active. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Challenge Athlete Foundation? You know, I found out about Challenge Athletes Foundation back in 2016. I applied for my first grant. I was denied because I was just getting into sport. And, you know, here's this 50-year-old guy that thinks he's an endurance athlete (laughs) getting back into it. He's reliving the glory days. But, you know, as I continued to enter races and and it was mainly paracycling back then, I had a need for a different type of bike. I wanted to start doing some gravel riding and just kind of hone some different skills on the Mm -hmm. bike. So I applied, I got a grant and, you know, it was probably one of the best days ever because they saw potential in me uh, where I see potential in other Mm -hmm. people. And and we just kind of joined ranks with that. And I've since been a, a, you know, an avid promoter of Challenged Athletes Foundation because I've, you know, been a recipient of their generosity. And that's probably the one go-to. They're probably the biggest on the planet as far as helping disabled athletes. And I've actually been trying to chase down Bob Babbitt. I'd love to have a conversation with him about the old 
triathlon days. He's, you know, part of the history as well. So, but one of the best go-tos, and then of course we have USA Triathlon Foundation, which is another that, you know, we can send people to because they just want people in the sport because they know, again, how life-changing it can be and how important it is just to be active and, you know, stretch your, your boundaries. And what about outside of the US? Are you familiar with many uh, similar foundations or support capacity, uh, support areas in other countries? Have you looked into that? I, I've seen several in England. I actually think I came across one in Australia, but you know, I'm, I stick closer to home with the stuff that, that I work with, mm-hmm. but I do think that there's a lot of great organizations out there. I, I you know, I couldn't really give you a, a rundown specific name or list, but uh, we've got a lot for veterans. There's a, some specializing in spinal cord injuries. There's some specializing uh, with cancer victims. I mean, if you have a disease and you look up athletic grants through Google or another search engine, you should be able to find some. And, you know, I would say that if <laughs> if anybody wants help with any of this stuff, I am always happy to lend a helping hand to, to somebody to help direct them to the source. USA Triathlon and, and Team USA, there's a ton of information on there as well. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat difficult to get to the the pair aspect and dig through a lot of that stuff that's there. I would love to see a central resource with all this stuff where, mm. you know, everything was collective or easier to find versus, you know, you have to go to all these different websites to find this and then go down through their qualifications. It, it should be much easier. Maybe that's a new project for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not an internet guru. I can work it okay, but I would say that uh, I've got a, I've got a great idea for it. Uh, you know, for just a central repository and just to make it easier on people. I just mm. I don't know if I could make that come to fruition. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe it's out there. Thank you so much you for your know. time. Yeah, thank you so much for your time, and and I think Stephen, you you've got such a unique. You know, it's, it's rare to find someone who was involved in the very early days and is still actively involved in in sport as an athlete with an impairment. And so it's been a great pleasure to, to have you on the podcast. Before we finish, though, there's always the question of what's your favourite food? <laughs> I will have to say pizza. And it, it's one of my sinful indulgences. And it, this goes back to my accident, actually. There was a sign on my door that when I had broke my mandible, my mandible was wired shut. Mm-hmm. So for, I think, maybe eight weeks, I was getting all my t- nutrition through a straw. <laughs> and I even ate a blended up pizza, <laughs> which oh, was, man. I mean, it tasted, yeah. Still tastes, it was still not quite like the same. Well, it did, but, you know, you weren't stringing cheese off as you yeah. drew it back from that bite, initial <laughs> bite. But uh, And somebody had hung a sign on my door that said, you know, please bring me a pizza. And so it was always kind of a joke. And I just, it's my one sinful indulgence. <laughs> oh, it doesn't always have to be simple, though. I think indulgences are there for uh, the... <laughs> due to the amount. <laughs> I think indulgences are there for the pleasure of it, not for not for any other reason. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, man, eight weeks with him, with your jaw. Oh, yeah, that's 
it's tough. It's amazing how much you can put into a blender, but eight weeks is a long time, isn't it, with, with your jaw wide shut? I went from 150 pounds down to 90. Yeah. That's how much weight I lost as a result of that. I mean, you can't take enough nutrition yep. in that way to, yep. to maintain a body. Yeah. It's just laying there lifeless. Yeah. And at 20, 21, 22 years of age, you, you go from a lot of muscle mass to, to not much at all and a lot to have to re, regain through your rehabilitation. So well done to you. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story and for the enthusiasm that you have for getting people involved in any form of activity, but specifically with, with paratriathlon. Thank you so much, Liz, uh, for helping me share my story. It's been a great pleasure and uh, you know, I, I welcome the opportunity for you to share it with your listeners. I think Stephen's story highlights a really important message that Getting involved in sport doesn't need to have a lot of high-tech equipment or a lot of skills and knowledge. It just needs some passion and some interest in being active for the benefit of an, an individual's health and well-being, irrespective of age, uh, background, financial resources, etc. There are support mechanisms out there. It's just a matter of looking for them and putting your first foot forward and finding someone who may be able to help you in that journey. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and feel free to share the podcast with your friends and family. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Amber Donaldson, who is a sports physiotherapist with Team USA.